Today's going to be the last sermon in the series that we've been doing. We've been in a series called Through New Eyes, and the conviction that we um, has driven us to the series is that God wants to give us eyes to see all kinds of things in our lives, that we make judgments, that we uh, see things in particular ways. You don't see things in just a strictly objective way. You see things through a particular set of eyes, and that God wants to give us new eyes to see ourselves and other people and the difficult things in our lives and the joyful things, all those things. And so today is the last sermon in that series. And so here's what's going to happen tomorrow. I'll tell you this. Um, Tomorrow, our lead pastor, Christian, is going to take our staff uh, through a way of thinking about the sermon series that we are coming to a close right now, and we're going to try to evaluate how it went. We do this after each sermon series. We do this in a comprehensive way. We want to use the gifts that God has given us, and we want to listen to God carefully. What would he have for our church? And so when we get done with a sermon series, Christian leads us, and we think, what went well in that sermon series, and what could have gone better? What happened in that sermon series that helps us live into the mission that God has called us to as a church, to fulfill the vision that he's given us, and what ways could have that gone better? Um, What ways did this sermon series show us what could happen in a great way in future sermon series, and in what ways can we go a different direction? Because that's what happens when you get to the end of anything. You make judgments about how it went. You get to the conclusion, and you look back, and you say, how did that go? Some of you will even do that tonight. You'll get uh, into the bed tonight and you'll look back on the day and you'll think, how did this go? In fact, there was a pastor in Spain in the 15th century. His name was Inigo Lopez. And he advised his people to do exactly that. He made up a, a program of prayer called the Examine. And he said what people should do at the end of the day is they should look back on the day with God's presence in mind, look back with gratitude on the things that went well, Uh, look back asking for God's help on the things that didn't go well and look forward into the future with hope because God is with you. So you get to the end of the day and you take a look and you say, how did that go? How were things happening in this day that just took place? You get to the end of a day and that happens. You also sometimes do it when you get to the end of a life. Sometimes at the end of someone else's life, I actually did a funeral this week. It was the funeral of a mom, the mother of one of the members here at Renaissance, a 91-year-old woman named Sue. Uh, She died, and I got to do her funeral. I didn't know her, but it was great to hear people talk about her. And as people talked about her, there was a time of sharing. As people talked about her, a lot of the people that I talked to shared the very same things. They said some of the same things that came up again and again. They said that she was really committed to her friends and family. She was always there for them. They said that she was really cheerful and joyful no matter what the circumstances were. She had a little sign in her kitchen and it said, you're only as happy as you make your mind up to be. I've been thinking about that a lot this week. And the thing that I liked the best is they said that she was the kind of a woman who would show up for you and go with you no matter what you wanted to do. She was always there by your side. So a friend might call her up and say, hey, Sue, do you want to go to the shore? You want to go to the beach? She'd say, great. That sounds really fun. Or her granddaughter would call and say, hey, grandma, I need to go pick up a prescription from the pharmacy. Would you go with me? She'd say, I'm in. She'd go. One time, she, uh, her daughter came home from a date. This was in college. And the date didn't go well. And she wasn't feeling very good. It was late at night. She got home, and her mom was already in bed. But she opened her mom's door, and she saw her mom's foot sticking out from the bed, from the covers. 
and she took a hold of her mom's big toe and she kind of wiggled it around a little bit. She said, Mom, um, would you want to get up and go out and get a drink and talk with me? And she said there was a little bit of silence and her mom goes, give me 10 minutes to get dressed. I'll be right there. As these stories got told, I heard a number of people say in the room, you know, um, I want to live a little bit differently. In light of seeing how she lived her life, there were a number of people said, I need to make some changes in my life. Because you get to the end of a day or you get to the end of a life and you look back, you have eyes to see that things are maybe different than they should have been. You get to the end of a life. And I've actually spent time with people who are at the end of their lives with only months or weeks or even days to live, and I've seen people look back on their lives. And I've seen them make judgments about the things that took place in their lives. And I've heard people say things. And of all the times as a pastor that I've ever sat with people, uh, talking with them, hearing them talk about their lives as they were end of their lives, in all that time, I have never heard anybody say, I'm really glad I held that grudge. I'm glad I didn't let go of the anger. I never heard anybody say, I'm really glad I kept hating myself the way I did inside. I'm glad that I kept trying to punish myself for things that took place a long time ago, focusing in on ways that I think I failed other people. And I never heard anybody say, you know, it's a good thing that I didn't let go of the ways that I think other people failed me. I never heard anybody say, I wish I'd spent more time at work. And I never, ever heard anybody say, you know, I spent way too much time trying to seek God, trying to follow after Jesus, trying to know his ways, his paths of love and justice and truth and joy. I never heard anybody say any of those things. You get to the end of a day or you get to the end of a life and you can see things in a different way. And sometimes it's a little scary to think about it because you think, man, you only really know certain things when you get to the end. But what I'm gonna hope to do today, what I've been praying about for each one of you and what I've been praying about for myself is maybe something miraculous can take place today. We can see from the end when we're not quite to the end. Because the way we're going to try to do it is we're going to look at the end of David's life. We've been looking at the life of David in the Bible. And today we're going to look at the very end of his life. He prayed a prayer in which he kind of summarized his life. And he summarized the truth of what he saw at the very end. And what I want to do is I want to go through that prayer. Now it's a very long prayer. It's in 2 Samuel 22. If you brought Bibles along, we're going to look at it. And you can open your Bibles now, but if you didn't, that's okay. Uh, the verses are going to come right up behind me. It's a long prayer. It's 50 verses long. So what I've tried to do over this week is I've tried to figure out what are the things in this prayer that summarize David's life and talk about it from the end. What are the things that are the most important? They come up the most, the most focus on them. And then I've tried to think also about what are the ways in which our community, I've asked God this, I've tried to do the best I can, what are the ways in which maybe we could have our lives changed by God by having a different view of things, a view from the end? So there are three things that I'm going to bring to our attention as we look at this together. The things that I hope we can see in this prayer that I think each one of us ought to take into our lives as best we can is that we should call on God consistently, that we should look for God expectantly, and we should walk before God blamelessly. 
Call on God consistently, look for God expectantly, and walk before God blamelessly. Now, here's the first one. It's to call on God consistently, and it comes from the very first verses of this prayer. This is 2 Samuel 22, beginning beginning at verse 2. It says, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my savior. You save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. You see that last verse, I call upon the Lord and there are lots of instances in this prayer. David calling out to God. The prayer itself is an instance of that, isn't it? He's calling out to God, and the reason that he's calling out to God is David leads a really complicated life. He had a really complicated life. He had things in his life where there were really joyful and powerful, and he wanted to thank God for those things. And he also had things in his life that were more difficult for him and really very hard to overcome, so he had to ask for God's help. But in David's prayer life, he didn't just wait for good things to come up to thank God for, and he didn't wait for hard things to ask for help. He had a consistent prayer practice, and I'm not guessing at this. I know it's the case because in other psalms that David wrote, he talks about having specific times of prayer. This is from Psalm 55. It won't come up here, but this is from Psalm 55, written by David. He says, but I call to God, and the Lord will save me. Evening and morning and at noon, I utter my complaint and moan, and he hears my voice. That's from Psalm 55. He prays three times a day. There's actually another prayer where he says, pray seven times a day. But let's start with three. Let's start there, you know. Evening, morning, and noon. It's the Hebrew day. It's the Jewish day. It starts at night. He prays then. He prays in the morning. Then he prays at noon. He has a specific prayer practice, and he has to do this because he has a hard life. He has enemies that are trying to take him down. And he has situations that require wisdom that he doesn't have. He has loneliness and anger and shame, all these things roiling up. And I was thinking as as I was putting this prayer together or the sermon together, I should show in David's life or I should show in this prayer where he had difficult circumstances that he had to ask for help. I could show those verses, but I'll ask you instead. You should just look at the verses in your life that say where you need help that you can't do on your own. Situations where you need wisdom that you don't have. I know that's the case for some of you, that there are enemies in your life that are trying to take you down, some of them physical and human, some of them spiritual and emotional, that you have in your life loneliness or sorrow or shame that's trying to pull you down. You need to call on God consistently because you need a shepherd, the king of love, and you need to continually call on him. I want you to take a look at the names that David calls God. He has all these names that he calls him, and these names teach us a whole lot of things. Take a look at those names. He calls God a rock and a fortress and a stronghold, all these things. The first thing that those names teach us is that God really does help us. Here's what I mean by that. Sometimes you'll hear people say, you know, prayer doesn't change God, but it changes the one who prays. Have you heard people say that? It's true that prayer will change you. But it's also true that God hears prayer and he answers it. And the names that David calls God kind of confirm that. You see the names that are like God and stronghold and fortress. Those are all words that come out of David's experience. 
You know the folks that just got back from Israel. If you don't know this, folks from Renaissance visited Israel the last two weeks. And Pastor Christian sent me pictures of places where David actually was. There are crags and mountains and rocks and high places and low places. And by using this language, David is saying, when I was in those places, God was a rock for me. He was a stronghold for me. He's using this imagery to show us that God really does show up. He's not like a butler. He's not gonna do everything that you say, but God really does come to you in your time of need. He really will change things. So these names show us us. They show us that God really does show up and he really does change things. Another thing that these names show us is that God is intimate and he belongs to us. God really does belong to us. Look at many of these have the first person singular pronoun. Do you see this? God is not just a shield. What is he? He's my shield. God is not just a savior. He's my savior. That's different. If you say God is a rock, that's one thing. But if you say God is my rock, that's different. And this is what David is showing us. He's showing us that God belongs to us in this way that it would almost be frightening to say was true if it wasn't right here in the text. Because David sounds a little bit like a kid. You know when a kid comes into a room and his toys are there, or maybe even somebody else's toys, and says, mine, this is mine. God is saying, you know the God of the universe who created all things, who is omnipresent and, and, and knows and is able and a creator? He's my, he's my shield, He takes arrows for me. These names are showing us that God is that close to us. He belongs to us. These names are also showing us that he's really intimate. He's close because all these names, you can see that they're basically nicknames. Saying God is my rock. God is my stronghold. Nicknames are for people that you're really close to. Nicknames are for people that you have a history with. And David has a history with God. He's called on him. He's called on him. So he's got all these names. He's my shield. He's my rock. He's my fortress. It's for people that you're intimate with. One of the things that I'm responsible for here at Renaissance Church is I help to oversee all of the adult education here. And one of the new adult education initiatives that I'm really excited about is the women's Bible study. It's been really great. On Tuesday nights, lots of women gathering here to be taught the Bible and to learn how to study the Bible and to connect with one another. It's been really, really lovely. And the teacher, Kathy Collier, she's been teaching. I love her teaching. She said something in the last couple of weeks which has made me curious. She keeps referring to this person that she spends a whole lot of time with named Jimmy. <laughs> now, she said, I've taken a walk with Jimmy. I talked with Jimmy about this. Now, I know Kathy's husband, Jim. I know Jim. Jim's a very dignified guy. His name is Jim. He's got nicely parted hair. He wears sport coats. Very nice. But I keep wondering, who's this young, carefree Jimmy that Kathy's taking all these walks with? I don't know who this is. And of course, it's her husband. She has a nickname for him. Do you know why? Because they have a history together. And they have intimacy And they've walked paths in the sun, beautiful paths, and they've also walked paths in the dark, in the valley of the shadow of death. You have nicknames for people that you're close with. God is saying, you can give me a nickname. You can be close to me. We can be bound together as close as a brother or a sister or any friend. That's who God is to you. 
Don't you want to have a nickname for God to say, he's my hiding place. He's my everything. He's my all the time. Whatever the nickname you might have for God would be. In fact, I'll do you one better. How about this? In the book of Revelation, it says that Jesus has a name for you that nobody else in the world knows, and he wants to tell you what that name is. Don't you want to know what his name for you is? Listen, I don't know exactly how you'll find out what it is, but I do know that it will come when you call on God consistently, when you know that he is yours, he belongs to you, when you know that he's walked all the way with you and he'll walk even farther than that. So God is intimate and close to you. Call on God consistently. That's the first thing. Here's the second thing is that you should look for God expectantly. And this comes in the prayer where God des- or David describes how God shows up. A lot of this has to do with God or David calling on God. I call on God, I call on God. And then beginning in verse nine, it says how God shows up. And it's very dramatic. It says, smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth, glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He was seen on the wings of the wind. David is describing here how God showed up in his life. He's given us a recounting of what it looked like when God showed up. Now, when I say looked like, here we have to be careful. We have to think thoughtfully here. David is not trying to tell us that he saw these things literally. And we're not taking the Bible less seriously by saying, no, this didn't happen literally. This is all just figurative. No, no, no. David is describing in poetic language, in metaphors, what it was like when God showed up. He's not trying to say here, God has nostrils. God breathes fire. God rides on a cherub. He's not trying to tell us that. We're taking the Bible more seriously when we say, we see that he is showing how God showed up. He's expectant to see God. He has eyes to see it, but he's using this imagery to see how powerful it was. God showed up in my life. How powerfully? Like an earthquake. How powerfully? Like fire. It was real. And he's asking us, he's showing us, what I'm trying to have for all of us is to have eyes to see that God really is showing up in your life and in my life. And David is using this language the same way that you and I use language all the time. We use metaphors like this too. Like let's say you know uh, a mom And she really, really is protective of her children. What do we say? We say she's like a mama bear and she fights for her children. And you're not saying that your friend is covered with fur, with claws, and she's going after people. You're just trying to say how powerful it was. And this is what David is showing us too, that we can use this kind of imagery, but also that we need eyes to see God is really at work in my life. David is also a realist. Look at verse 10. Verse 10, I really love. It said, he bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. You know what he's saying there? I know God is there, but I'm not always sure what he's doing. There's thick darkness. I can't see it all. There's some things that are just beyond me. I look and I know he's there, but I can't see it all. He has expectant eyes to see God in his life, but he's also humble enough to say, I'm not sure exactly always what he's doing. So this vivid language is showing that God really does show up. He's still mysterious. And it's helping us to see that we need eyes that are expectant. Look for God expectantly in your life because you have to make a choice. 
Each day when you look at your life, you look at what took place in the day or the week or a year, you're going to have to make a decision. Was God really there or not? Because there's lots of different ways you can look at your life. And we can use the example from David's life. Uh, let's look at the most, uh, probably the most famous example of David's life, his battle against Goliath. Many of you know that story. He's a shepherd. He's out in the fields. He goes to bring food to his brothers who are in the army. He's not a soldier yet. He's not a warrior. But when David shows up, this young boy, he gets there and almost literally all of the soldiers of Israel are cowering before this huge champion, Goliath. None of them want to face Goliath. But David goes out, not dressed in armor, but he dressed in the garb of a shepherd. And he takes out the, the, the slingshot and he goes and he challenges Goliath and he hits him in the head and he defeats him. And that's what happens. You know that story. Now, what we're talking about is looking for God expectantly in your life. Think about how David could have talked about that episode. There are two different ways he could have talked about it. He gets to the end of that day when he defeated Goliath. Here's one way he could talk about it. He could say... I just did that. Man, I did that. Nobody else could do it, but I did. I'm stronger than they all thought. I'm more cunning than anybody gave me credit for. You know, when my dad took everybody to the party, all my brothers, they didn't take me. When it was time for the king to be anointed, they never thought of me at all, but I was the king that needed to be anointed. And now I am the king, and they're going to bow down because I'm stronger than they are and I'm more powerful and I'm smarter than they are. And I showed it by defeating Goliath and defeating all those Philistines. It was me. And if that's how David talked about it, in a way, partially, he'd be right. Because David was strong and he was cunning and he was called to be the king. That would be one way to evaluate that day. And here'd be another way. At the end of that day, he would, could say, man, God is good. God is mysterious. He prepared me for this day. I didn't know he was preparing me for that day when I was out there among all the sheep and the bears were coming at me and the wolves and the lions. But God prepared me. I battled against those animals and so I wasn't so scared when Goliath came. And I've now had this skill that I never would have had unless I was in those circumstances. A situation that I much rather would have been at the party, much rather would have been uh, the one that my father liked the best, but I wasn't. But those circumstances were all set up by God. And now he's going to be with me. I know I don't have the strength to be the king, but he is going to be with me. Do you see the difference between those two ways of looking at an experience in your life? You're going to have the same choice to make. That you get to the end of your day and you can look back at your day and you can say, I'm all alone. My life doesn't really have any much meaning. I'm not really sure what's going on. I don't think God is with me. Maybe God was with me a long time ago. I don't think he is anymore. I'm not sure I believe that anymore. And you could look and the evidence might tell you that that's true, but you could also look at your life and say, I think God is with me. Even through the thick darkness and the clouds, I can see him. And he's powerfully at work in my life. And he said he'll never leave me or forsake me. He says I'm his beloved and I'm going to believe that. I'm going to have eyes to expectantly see. And David is teaching himself this by this prayer, and he's teaching all of us that too. To look for God expectantly in your life. Don't go through your days. Because you'll sometimes see what you want to see. You'll see what you expect to see. And if you expect to see yourself alone and without purpose and without meaning and without love and support, your eyes might tell you that that's the case. But if you look through the eyes that God gives you, you're gonna see yourself as beloved of God and that you have divine appointments to keep. 
that he wants to use you out in the world. That'll take us to our third point. The second point is to, well, the first point is call on God consistently. The second point is to look for God expectantly. And here's the last one, to follow God blamelessly. Now, this part of the prayer is really fascinating and a little tricky too, because the thing that I'm about to read to you from David's prayer This is the end of his life. It comes after his worst falls, his adultery with Bathsheba, and after his murder of Uriah, and after his severe neglect of his children. After all that, look at what he prays. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. I read this to somebody on staff earlier this week, and she said, selective memory. (laughs) For all his rules were before me, and from his statutes, I did not turn aside. I was blameless before him, and I kept myself from guilt. What do we make of this? How do we understand this as a prayer that David would pray knowing what he did? I know that some of you have very robust prayer lives. Would you ever pray a prayer like this? For all his rules before me, and I didn't turn aside. I was blameless before him. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. Would any of you dare praise this? I suspect not. I suspect instead that your prayer lives sometimes say something like this. Dear God, please have mercy on me. Dear God, even my righteousness is filthy rags. Dear God, would you please show your love to me, your forgiving love? I suspect that you might say something like that. And you know what? Those are good things to pray because those are biblical prayers. All those things that I just said, those come from scripture. So those those are good things to pray. But look at what else is scriptural. I was blameless before him. You know, this prayer is not just in 2 Samuel 22. It's also Psalm 18. David and the editors of the Bible decided to put this prayer into the Bible so that you and I would all have to pray it. So we would have to say, I was blameless before him. How can you say you're blameless before God? And the answer is when you think about what it means to be blameless. You can think about it in an eternal way and you can think about being blameless just for today. Let's think about those two things. The first thing is, if you want to say that you're blameless in an eternal way, we have to think about it in sort of a vertical way. When we stand before God, can we say we are blameless in an eternal way? And the answer is no. Because over and over in Scripture, we're told that all have turned aside. None are righteous. No, not one. That each one of us have fallen short of the standard of God's love and justice and holiness. And none of us can stand before God eternally blameless. We can't do that. And because that's the case, God wants to give us, through Jesus Christ, the gift of being able to be eternally blameless before him. But it's not something that we can provide. It's something only that can be given as a gift to us. That through Jesus Christ, by faith, we can receive the gift of being eternally blameless before him. And when I say by faith, I'm not using a religious word here. It simply means this, that you could turn to Jesus and say, Jesus, I believe that you love me, and I believe that you care for me, and I believe that your life of faithfulness was enough for me to stand blameless before God. And I believe that the cross where you bore my sins in your body 
was enough for me to be declared righteous. I can't stand eternally blameless before you, but I know that you overcame death. God raised you up from the grave, and now I don't need to fear death anymore. So the gift of eternal life comes to us as a gift through Jesus Christ by faith. And if you've never thought about that, or if you've never made that decision to look to Jesus with even a small mustard seed worth of faith, I wish you would do that now. I wish you would call on him and say, I can't stand before you eternally blameless. I can't do that. But I want someone to stand alongside me. And I promise you, each one of you, I promise you, Jesus Christ will stand alongside you in eternity to stand before you and say, he belongs to me, she belongs to me. And they're eternally blameless because of what I've done. And he'll put his arm around you and he will belong to him and he will belong to you. To be eternally blameless is not something that's available to us. However, let's go right back to the text. It does say right there at the very end, I was blameless before him. And now let's not talk about being blameless in an eternal way, but for today. And when we talk about being blameless in a temporal way for today, that's different. And that means that's an invitation for each one of us to live a life of goodness a life of love and care for the people around us. And this is extended to us in the Old Testament, but also the New Testament. I'm gonna show you some verses from the New Testament that says that's what our call is, to be blameless. Take a look. This is from Ephesians 1, verses three and four. Ephesians is the the book that says that grace is the only way we can stand before God, but it also says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. You should be blameless. Oh, I can see on your faces, you think, oh, I shouldn't say that. Well, it's right here in the Bible. It says here that you are called to be blameless. And what that would mean is not that you're perfect and not that you have some sort of claim on God because of all the good things you did. It simply means that you can live a life of integrity, of love, of care for the people around you. It's not just this one place. Look at this is from Philippians. Be blameless and innocent. Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. I'm pointing this out because all three of these things, to call on God consistently, I want that so much for you. I want that so much for me because that intimacy that comes when you're connected to God and his love and to find out your purpose and meaning, I want that for every one of you. I want every one of you to look through your eyes and see and look and see God expectantly. I want that for you so that you're not thinking that you're alone. That's a lie. And I want this for you too because I know that even though you think, I can't do this, I don't have enough faith, I'm a broken person, maybe, But I do know somebody who has enough faith, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ, and he can instill in you a righteousness, a blamelessness, so that you can have integrity with the people around you, so that you can turn away from the things that you know you should turn away from and turn towards him, and so that you can live with honesty and love. There are things in your life where there's injustice. You can participate in what God is doing to bring justice. There are people in your life that need your encouragement. You say, I'm too weak to do this. Okay, maybe. But is the God who raised Jesus Christ from the dead too weak to do those things through you? Don't say that. The one who is in you is stronger than the one who is in the world. The one who is inside of you has enough love to overflow into the lives of the people around you. Don't go one more day in your life 
Don't get to the end of your life and say, I wish I had done it differently. Don't do that. Start today. Call on God consistently. Look for him expectantly in your life. Be blameless so that you can participate, so you can be a shining star. Be a shining star, Ren Church. I know you can do it because I believe in the one who has called you to do it. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Dear God, we give you thanks that you are a God who can do great things through us because of your power, because of your love, because of your glory. So help us in this time to see our lives through the new eyes that you want to give us. Would you do that for each person here? Do it for those here who have never chosen to follow you. Help them to see you as the one to follow. Do it for those of us here who have followed you for a long time. Help us to do it with renewed strength. Help us to shine like lights in the world, like stars. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.